0: Hi, this is Panel Beater, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Facebook page. Welcome to Radio Therapy. This week on the show, we're aiming high. In previous episodes, we've covered the pancreas, the teeth, and the eye. I just realized that rhymes. Slowly, we've been working our way up to the king of organs, the one-day cart half-mortgaged off to the church. That 1,500 grams of flesh between our ears. I'm talking about the brain. And joining us on our journey through those 80 billion, really, 80 billion synapses we call home are three people who can tell us an awful lot about it. First up, we'll be speaking with Robbie Frawley, who suffered a mild traumatic brain injury from multiple concussive episodes. After many years of rehabilitation, Robbie came up with a brilliant idea, and that was to interview people with different types of nervous system damage and ask them about their recovery journeys. He's put these interviews into a podcast or a series called Stories of Recovery. And these stories really highlight the remarkable phenomenon of the body's neuroplasticity. We'll be talking with him in just a minute. Now, Professor Julie Stout is a psychologist and clinical neuroscientist at Monash University and the Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health, where she is a recognised leader in cognitive functioning She also happens to lead the Huntington's Disease Network of Australia. Julie has published more than 200 papers and had her work cited more than 15,000 times. She also, that's about 15,000 times more than my work's been cited. She also directs a small company that assists pharma sponsors internationally with implementation of cognitive assessments. And today she's going to be doing her career no end of harm by appearing with us scallywags uh, here on Radiotherapy. Professor Terry J O'Brien, I'll be asking what the J stands for. Has a CV so long that I've got writer's cramp from trying to type it out. Suffice to say, he's chair of medicine at neuro, sorry, in neurology and head of central clinical school at Monash University. He's also program director and deputy head uh, of Re- deputy head and director of research at Alfred Brain, which I'm guessing is the neurology unit at. Alfred Hospital. He has been a principal investigator in more than 100 clinical trials of new treatments. Oh my goodness, for epilepsy, dementias, headache, movement disorders, and new pet radio tracers. I'll ask him what a pet radio tracer is. Terry has published more than ah, a billion peer reviewed papers <laughs> in leading scientific and medical journals, and he is the current president of the Epilepsy Society of Australia. Um, and if that ain't enough brain power reflecting on itself this morning, we also have psychologist extraordinaire, Dr. G-Spot, who'll be steering the ship on its neural journey uh, this morning. Nurse EpiPen will be joining us from home, from hilandrum uh, it seems, uh, where she is nursing a sore ankle. Phew! What a colossal show. So stick with me, Dr Malpractice, and the team for the next hour of radiotherapy. Good morning, Dr G-Spot.
1: Good morning, Dr Mal. It's so lovely to be with you today.
0: First time since June last year you've been in the studio, yeah?
1: It, it has been such a long time. Too long. I mean, I realised how creepy it is to be this close to you again, but uh, I'll, I'll manage to keep the anxiety at bay.
0: You'll be Zooming now for the next year. Oh, absolutely. Well, that's probably why uh, Nurse EpiPen is where she is. EpiPen, can you hear us?
2: Yes, I'm oh, here.
0: Technology Woo-hoo. working. Um, uh,
2: sunny morning.
0: Isn't it gorgeous? Look, I really hope your ankle clears up and you and you can hobble back into the studio sometime soon.
2: Four weeks? In four weeks?
0: Four weeks. Well, that's exactly when the next show will be on. So it's absolutely per- yeah, well, our show.
2: Fantastic After. stuff.
0: Asher. But of course, radiotherapy is every week, but this particular team... The dream
1: team are every the, four weeks. Are we
0: called the dream team? We are now. <laughs> radiotherapy <laughs> dream team. On the Zoomer, we have Robbie Frawley. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Robbie.
3: Thanks for having me, Rob. It's, it's great to be here.
0: Yeah, look, um, we had a bit of a chat before the show and I know a bit about your work, but just tell us a bit about yourself.
3: Uh, So I'm uh, 35, grew up in country Victoria, southwest on a sheep and cattle farm, work as a civil engineer now in Melbourne and uh, yeah, very much enjoying the, the bounce back of Melbourne at the moment. It's beautiful weather, everybody's out and about and the vibes are good, so enjoying that.
0: Isn't it like I gotta say autumn in Melbourne is probably the best time to be anywhere in the world. It's just beautiful. Now tell us a bit about what happened to you. Um how long ago was it now? Ten years, seven years ago?
3: Oh look, I've the timing's always tricky <laughs> post COVID. <Yeah. laughs> it was about eight eight years ago-ish. Um look, I'd I'd had a number of um, very mild concussions growing up playing sport played a lot of sport in the country yeah. and i had a fairly innocuous fall on a wakeboard so it's uh it's kind of like the snowboarding equivalent of water skiing and so I had a basically caught the front edge and what you, what happens then is you kind of whiplash into the water which is very common that happens a lot in sort of wakeboarding and in snowboarding but didn't lose consciousness um but just uh was a bit sort of Just knew something was a bit odd and hopped into the boat and was a little bit out of just a little bit removed from myself the rest of the day. And um, anyway, next day felt pretty good. Went surfing, had another fall and then felt very ill. Mm. Um, I'd had a number of concussions, so I was pretty familiar with the, I guess, the process of feeling almost hungover and headaches and nausea and cognitive fog and fatigue for the next couple of weeks in the past that always kind of passed and I'd return to normal. And in this case, instead of coming good, they kind of deteriorated as I mm. continued to kind of push through with work and, mm. you know, back to normal life, just trying to push through the fatigue until it came good things started to deteriorate over those coming weeks rather than get better. Mm. And so then began a, uh, a six year journey of recovery. So look, I'm, I'm back to a hundred percent now. Um, but I've, I've learned a huge amount about the brain and about neuroplasticity and mm. about what's worked for me mm. along the journey. And, mm. and, yeah, that's really why I started this podcast was personally uh, when I was in that situation, I hadn't even heard of, like the, the condition is called post-concussion syndrome. Mm. So um, the trauma rehab team at Grace McKellar in Geelong who I mm. saw said that 20% of concussions res- result in post-concussion mm. syndrome, mm. which is this prolonged um, effect of symptoms. Mm. And they can tell you that you will get better, but they can't tell you when mm-hmm. um, and so personally, you sort of think, okay, next week mm. <laughs> <laughs> Two <Cool>. weeks yeah.
0: <laughs> next week
3: um, so obviously, six years was longer than I anticipated or hoped at the time, but I certainly learned uh, a heck of a lot along that journey and yeah. and for me, i suppose i didn't I didn't really have um I just didn't have role models at the time. Like I didn't, I couldn't see anyone who'd had this. And Mm. when I did discover them, I couldn't see anyone who'd gotten better. Mm. And so that was really the, Mm. yeah, the starting point for the podcast was let's share the stories of people who have gotten better from these things so that others can see that and see that light at the end of the tunnel, but also the things that have helped most.
0: Yeah. So your recovery took a while. Um, What kind of, Rehab things, or what kind of things, did you do to actually help
3: that recovery? Oh, look, I tried. <laughs> I tried a wide and uh, varied <laughs> what mixture <worked>? of things.
2: <laughs> look, probably like the
3: key things that um that worked for me, you know, if I was to summarise it to yeah. three, was I was referred early by my GP to Grace McKellar, yeah. um, which is a trauma rehab centre in community outreach centre in Geelong. Yeah. so they base typically would see victims of car crash and that type Mm -hmm. of thing and you have a team of specialists um so a trauma rehab physician and ot a Mm -hmm. physio an exercise physiologist and neuropsychologist and they basically work with you to um do a bunch of testing Mm -hmm. to give you a help you give you a diagnosis at the start and then give you management strategies Mm -hmm. to manage yourself coming coming back so Mm -hmm. that was all about um management strategies and pacing early on later on for me the real learnings came from other disciplines so pain science um, I learned a huge amount from a bunch of researchers at the University of South Australia um, who are really at the forefront of pain science globally Mm -hmm. and that was this um, yeah fascinating for me I just I could see all these similarities and all these things resonated even though they were talking about pain rather than uh, concussion in this case. Yeah. And the third one I'd just really quickly say is neuropsychologist. I think neuropsychologists are incredibly, incredibly helpful in this space.
0: Well, you're getting nods from uh, the neuropsychologist <laughs> in, uh, <particularly laughs> in neuroscientists. neuroscientist. Uh, EpiPen, you had a, a, a question.
2: Um, so Robbie, in your rehab or looking f- uh, to the future for yourself, what's the story about doing some of these exercises or sports or have you been told to back off and not do them anymore? Is that part of your rehab and new lifestyle?
3: Uh, look, not so much. So as I said, I'm, I'm back to 100%. So for a long time, I couldn't run. I have only only sort of was able to start running again at the start of COVID just because that, the, the impact, mm. the up and down impact of jogging was too much and that would just send all of my symptoms into overdrive. Um, but otherwise, I was really, really functional as long as I didn't get any bumps. Um, but look, no, no, I don't know. Early on, they probably said, oh, everything's a decision, right? And and that's how I see things now. Everything's a risk-reward, and that's that's a personal, subjective decision. You've got to weigh up the risk to you versus the reward of whatever it is you're doing, and that's always going to be a very personal decision. Um, and, and I think that's also something I sort of gained from the pain science world is that um, by sometimes we can actually – be being unhelpful to ourselves by being overprotective and that was certainly something for me was you know in a chronic state over many years your systems become kind of overprotective and that's that's effectively what pains you know chronic pain is it's an overprotective pain system and that's what my concussion symptoms had become they'd become very very sensitive and um Yeah. Like effectively I needed to understand that to begin with and then learn how to turn those down Mm. so that I wasn't getting these symptom flares when I really wasn't in any danger. So look, I'm not going to go and play AFL now, um, but I'm not going to go boxing just because for me, the risk reward isn't there, but there are plenty of other things I do, which other people might consider risky because the risk reward there's for me and, and I'm not I'm not constantly fearful, Mm. certainly,
0: anymore. That's your kind of personal decision. We've got a question from uh, G-Spot.
1: Thanks so much, Robbie. So rather than AFL and boxing, it sounds like you've been making a podcast. Just wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, along my journey, as I said, I didn't didn't sort of particularly see a lot of role models. And it's really important. I guess I learned a lot and I wanted to share those learnings because I knew other people would be within this same dark sort of place this same journey and so I wanted to share my learnings but I also saw that there was a huge amount to gain from these other disciplines like pain science. Um, I saw there was you know at least anecdotally from my experience a lot of overlap in terms of the social isolation and the fatigue and some of the neuro um, like the cognitive symptoms you know relating to concussion but also tbi and stroke and pain sciences uh, chronic pain etc so i started interviewing people who had recovered or substantially recovered from these conditions really just to kind of provide hope through examples of people who had gotten better and then to highlight the things so the interviews are really about what are the things that have been most beneficial and most important in your recovery so that for someone else who might have just come out of a rehab ward for a stroke and they're really, you know, they've, they've seen all this improvement and they now feel like they're plateauing and they're starting to lose hope, they can hear a story from, you know, Sally Kelly, this triple Olympian who has been through the same experience and hear how she tackled it and how, you know, she really attacked her rehab 24-7 as, as though she was attacking her Olympic training.
0: Robbie, whereabouts can we find the podcast?
3: You can find it on all major podcasting platforms Mm -hmm. by searching for Stories of Recovery or you can go direct to the source at Mm -hmm. storiesofrecovery.buzzsprout.com where there's also full transcripts and show notes that sort of summarise, I guess, the key learnings Mm -hmm. because, you know, they're pretty, they're long form interviews. Mm -hmm. So for some people, yeah, show notes might be easier.
0: Great stuff. And we'll be putting that link up uh, on our socials with our socials manager, who I'm staring at right now. <laughs> Am I the manager now? <laughs> oh, dear. Great, you. Or, or was it EpiPen? One of you. Uh, <laughs> thanks so much, Robbie. We're going to uh, ask you to, to hang with us because we've got uh, two uh, experts in the field coming up and I'm sure you will have questions for them and perhaps they'll have questions for you. So stick with us and thanks so much, mate, for joining us this morning on Radiotherapy. Thank you.
3: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au.
1: We're talking to the amazing, super cool, Professor Julie Stout, also known as Killer Jules. So, first up, Julie, just wanted to hear about your journey to becoming a neuroscientist, neuropsychologist. How did you get into the field?
2: Yeah, um, when I was in high school, I think I already started reading Psychology Today. So I was, you know, an early psychology fan, I suppose. And so I always knew when I went away to university that that's what I would want to do. But I really didn't realize at the time how much science was behind psychology. And once I started learning about the science, I really loved it, and especially the brain science. So that's what I ended up focusing on. Um, Went through my postgraduate training and then uh, a postdoc. And um, that's kind of, you know, it just caught the bug. Uh, I got really interested in neurodegenerative disorders, and especially working with older people. Um, And that's uh, probably what really drew me into the field, was just um, working with people who had neurodegenerative diseases and uh, were struggling to try and make sense of what was happening to them. So um, yeah, over those years, I found Huntington's disease, um, which is a really um, interesting disease. and met many people with Huntington's disease, um, Many, because it's a, fam- a family disease. I was able to meet a lot of families that were dealing with HD and had been dealing with it for multiple generations. And I suppose that's what has really compelled me to stay in the field.
1: Oh my goodness. Yeah. And probably our listeners might notice a bit of an accent, Julie. Do you mind telling us where you're originally from?
2: Yes, sure. Um, I come from Ohio, um, from uh, up near Lake Erie in Ohio, but I lived around in the U.S., east coast and west coast uh, for my training. And then um, due to uh, my mother-in-law, I ended up in Melbourne. (laughs)
1: Uh, should we give her a shout out or?
2: <laughs> well, she's no longer with us, unfortunately, That's but she was a in great influence <laughs> in terms of bringing our family here.
1: Oh, well, we're so glad you're here, Julie. And you mentioned Huntington's disease before, and I really wanted to take a deep dive on that. So what is Huntington's disease for listeners who might not be sure?
2: Yeah, um, Huntington's disease is a brain disease. Um, it's a slow degenerative disease. And the thing that's um, important to know about Huntington's disease is it's genetic. Mm -hmm. And every parent who has HD, each of their offspring has a 50% chance of inheriting Mm -hmm. the gene. And if they don't get the gene, they'll get the disease. Um, Huntington's disease, unlike many neurodegenerative diseases that have old age of onset, Huntington's disease usually has onset in the middle age um, period, you know, 35 to 45 but it can have onset in young people mm-hmm. um even children and it can also have onset um in older people as well but most commonly it affects people when they're um you know parents and they already have some children and um because they've had a family where the huntington's disease has already Um, been a part of their lives. One of their parents would have had it, grandparent, Mm. um, maybe aunts, uncles, cousins. They know a lot about it and they kind of know, um, you know, that it can be a quite difficult road to go.
1: Mm. And you mentioned it being a genetic disorder there, Julie. I wonder if you could tell us the Lake Maracaibo story.
2: Yeah, well, Lake Maracaibo, um, uh, it's a really important place, and the people of Lake Maracaibo are really important for Huntington's disease, Uh because it was through um, their generosity that we uh, had the gene identified in 1993. And I'll make a mention of Nancy Wexler, who was a a clinical psychologist and neuropsychologist who, um, starting in the 1980s, she led a team of people who went down to Lake Maracaibo. Um, This was uh, at the time, the gene wasn't known, and it was known that it was a genetic disease because people had mapped out in families um, how the gene, or how the disease had been passed down. So um, Nancy would go to Lake Maracaibo year after year with a team of ten or twelve people. Lake Maracaibo is a, a part of Venezuela that is very uh, geographically isolated, and because of that, um, when Huntington's disease started there, um, it it uh, a lot of people got it, and in fact normally you inherit it from one parent, but there were so many people in Lake Maracaibo with HD that some people were actually inheriting from both a mother and a father. So anyway, what was really amazing is that um, it's a very kind of um, uh, depressed area, and people live in huts, and you know, so the, the neurologists would go down there, neuropsychologists, and so on, and they would just set up kind of picnic tables um, in the field or under a tree and do neurological exams or cognitive exams, eventually taking computers down there, which they had to really work hard to try and um, find a way to charge them. How big were
1: computers in 1993?
2: Yeah, well, even before that, believe it or not. (laughs) But they were very primitive and they were big and they had to lug them around. Oh my gosh. But um, all of these people were, you know, tested in these really kind of basic conditions. But um, eventually, in 1993, um, through laboratory, um, what what happened is people in Lake Maracaibo gave their blood. Um, They just would give a vial of blood um, every year when Nancy Wexler would go down there with the team. And eventually, from that, they were able to um, isolate uh, the gene. This was around the time when the human genome was really first being described as well so uh the uh huntingtons the the timing of this you know really happened because of the human genome research that was going on at the time as well
1: how oh, amazing yeah such a cool story there julie and just wondering how common is huntingtons
2: yeah um actually it's about um between four mm. and eight and ten thousand people mm. across the world um but it has areas and pot, like like. Like Lake Maracaibo, um, where it's more prevalent, and in fact, in Australia we have a few pockets where it's more prevalent. Mm. We have a bit more here in Victoria, so um, it's probably around ten per hundred or ten per ten thousand here. Um, Tasmania also has a high um, a high number there, and some pockets in Western Australia as well.
0: Mm.
1: And what happens over the course of the disease?
2: Well. In the beginning, um, people are completely um, functioning, completely normally. Um, but what happens is they gradually begin to develop a bit of a movement disorder. They show um, kind of unnatural um, writhing movements or kind of fidgetiness, and that kind of progresses across time over the course of a number of years until they're really moving quite a bit. Maybe their arms may be flailing, and they're um, when they're walking, they're swinging around a bit. Um, they also have cognitive decline, so people early on report that um, they get uh, have especially difficulty doing things efficiently, like doing more than one thing at a time. For example, get, making a meal and getting everything onto the table at the same time, or if they're in their office and somebody knocks on the door, they lose track of where they are and then they can't get back to it. Everything's taking more time. Um, and they also have some um, emotional symptoms as well. They have um, usually some depression is, is quite mm-hmm. common. More than fifty percent of the people have depression. Um, there's a lot of times anxiety or sometimes people get quite stuck on certain things. Um, they can't get certain ideas out of their head um, and they keep going back to them and kind of driving the people around them a bit crazy. Um, so it really has you know both c- it has cognitive movement as, as well as kind of the emotional signs as well.
1: My goodness. So um, it sounds like it's a, a bit of a slow progression, but then um, escalates over time.
2: Yeah, it's, very, it's a very slow progression, mm. um, and people um, probably have the disease for several years, gradually emerging yeah. um, before they get a diagnosis from the neurologist. Um, and then, you know, at that point, they they still can live, you know, for a, quite a long time afterwards. Mm. But they just have a gradual progression and decline in functioning. I can
1: imagine that because it runs in families. People might know what it looks like when they start exhibiting symptoms, what it might turn into
2: yeah, we actually recently we just did a study, and it was um, it was about depression and huntington 's mm-hmm. disease and you know i 'm sure you, some people might know that when you have depression, you know one of the symptoms is cognitive symptoms, and so people think about negative things when they 're mm-hmm. depressed and what we found in um, talking to people with huntington 's disease who had depression is a lot of their thoughts were around. Um, what might happen to them, what might happen to their children, you know, what has happened to other people in the family. So they have a lot of negative thoughts that are associated with EHD and and the kind of trauma associated with experiencing it, you know, throughout a family across multiple generations. So we think this is really an important thing for us to to know more about um, and consider as part of the treatments.
1: And mentioning treatments, what is available?
2: Well, um, at this point, and this is really the case for all the neurodegenerative diseases, mm-hmm. there's nothing that can slow the progression mm-hmm. or delay the onset. But um, we're really um, working hard internationally to try and find these kind of treatments. Right now, what we can offer are some treatments that improve the movement disorder that just they don't improve the disease. They just make the symptoms more manageable. Also, we can treat the depression and the other psychiatric manifestations of the disease. Mm -hmm. Um, For cognition, we don't have anything yet. Although, Mm -hmm. um, just incidentally, we're going to be having a clinical trial starting soon here in Australia that is going to be looking at... Yes, I know. (laughs) It's so so good. We've actually been very successful at bringing trials to Australia in the past few years, which is really exciting. Oh,
1: my. You took the words right out of my (laughs) mouth there, Julie. I was going to ask... It was a bit of a disappointing year last year for yes. trials, and just wondering if you can expand on that. But then we'll get to the awesome things ahead.
2: Yeah, well, look, the neurobiology of the disease is something that we have to understand better to be able to find successful treatments. But just like in. Um, All the, like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's. In Huntington's, it's the same thing that there's an abnormal protein, and we've got to find a way to slow the production of that protein or stop it from being produced in order to make this disease, um, you know, have a different course what we have to do uh, now is we have to keep trying new um, approaches to to make sure that we can find an effective and a safe way to make sure that that protein can get um, knocked down. So this in the past five years or so, there've been some really um, promising treatments and, you know, people in fact thought that, you know, we would have a treatment by now. We've thought this for like maybe 15 Mm -hmm. years now. Um, And so, but but I do believe that you know we are getting closer, and that the strategies that are becoming available, um, you know, may mean that Huntington's disease is, is possibly the first um, neurodegenerative disease that does have a treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, that would
1: be amazing. Yeah, it
2: would really be amazing. So uh, you know, people are working really hard on this, and we're you know really happy that we're able to contribute to that here in Australia. Many um, patients with Huntington's disease and family members are really keen to be involved in finding solutions for this um, really devastating disease. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And just, I know Nurse EpiPen on the Zoom is keen to ask you a question. Nurse EpiPen, over to you.
2: Uh, hi, Julie. Um, fascinating work. Um, where are we up to in the space of prenatal diagnosis for Huntington's? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Um, so when people have um, are aware that they have the gene for Huntington's disease, Either a man or a woman, Um, they can be involved in uh, pre implantation genetic testing. So there is um, the possibility that um, embryos can be created from the um, father and the mother, including the person who has the Huntington's disease gene. And then embryos can be selected um, that can be implanted that don't have the, the the gene, the Huntington's yeah. disease gene, so um, this is something that's possible, and in Australia, it's um, something that's going on. Many people make a decision that that's how they want to have children. If they have um, either hunting, they know that they have the Huntington's disease gene, or maybe they're at risk and they don't want to take the test. So that is something that can be done, um, and we have, you know. Um, a health system that supports that for people who have, um, who have HD gene in their family. Mm. So Over to uh, you, Dr. Malpractice. Th- I was
0: actually going to ask you what the name of the protein is, but you've just spurred another question in my mind. What's the name of the protein? It's Do called the <laughs> Huntington
2: protein. Oh, that's pretty easy to yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You just give it a name, you know, so that's, what, that's the one that got. And instead of Huntington with a T-O-N at the end, it's, a- it's T-I-N. That's really the only T-I-N. difference. Yeah.
0: Oh, so is it named? Up, it's named after Huntington's yeah, disease. Yeah, that's right.
2: And Huntington's disease is named after the f- person who first described it, who was George Huntington. Right. So, yeah, if you discover a disease, maybe you can get a protein named uh, after yourself. Uh, the, the, you. the, the, the Dr. Malpractice. The Dr. disease. I wonder what that <laughs> would be. I think we have that every Sunday, yeah. don't we? <laughs>
0: a <laughs> I, well, brain
1: fog on radio. I, I'd be
0: getting to that in a second, uh, <laughs> as we talked before the show. Um, just, just with that genetic testing, like say I th- say I know that I had a relative with Huntington's in the past. I don't know if I've got Huntington's or Correct. not. Yep. Let's just say, but then I get the my um, my uh, I, I do uh, IVF genetic testing. Get, oh oh or,
2: no, IVF. Yeah. I I,
0: and I get it done on the um, the embryo. That's right. Yep. So then, if the embryo is has Huntington's, that means I must have it. Is that right?
2: That's right. Yep. So yeah. what happens is, you know, people will yeah. um, usually create a, a bunch of embryos, yeah. and then they select the ones that don't have the HD gene. Right. But if they find that there is an HD, um, there is a, uh, an embryo that has the yeah. HD gene. Then you have found out that you also carry the gene.
0: Have you ever had this? Well, do you know of situations where that's that's happened? Where well,
2: have... um, actually, it's interesting because in different um, genetic testing environments, in different, um, you know different medical settings, sometimes there can be an agreement made that if we find... So because you produce multiple embryos, you can probably find one that doesn't have the HD gene. And if you find the one that doesn't have the HD gene and and you use those, then um, there can be an agreement that you don't tell the person... Whether you found some that do have the HD gene, so there are lots of different ways that this wow, can be handled, and you know you can also imagine another situation. Imagine, say, you've got a, a grandparent who doesn't know if they have the gene, but somebody else in their family has it, and now the, their child wants to have. Oh the HD um, gene test that there are all sorts of inadvertent um, disclosures um, about the HD gene status that you have to really manage in a family. And that's why genetic counseling is so important Uh, for this disease. I was just going to say that's where
0: genetic counseling really comes to the fore because there's lots of moral, ethical relationship questions. Yeah, there are really um,
2: uh, vexing ethical issues with this. Uh,
1: Just on that topic, Julie, I wanted to give you a chance to chat about the MAP HD registry.
2: Yeah, sure. Well, um, Across the, um, across the globe, there's actually a study um, that has 28,000 people who are um, at risk or have the HD gene. But um, we only have a couple places in Australia that are involved in that study. It's called Enroll HD. And um, so... One of the things that we wanted to do is to actually create a registry of people who have um, HD in their families. It can be a person who knows they have the HD gene or somebody who's at risk or even a family member who knows they're not at risk but they're in a family that has HD. So we created a registry, um, and it just launched um, at the end of last year, called the MAP HD Registry. And the goal of that registry is to find all of the people um, across the country who are um, from HD families Um, we're also doing a prevalence study and you might say well why are we doing all of this well you know what's interesting is we actually do think that there's a good chance we will get a treatment um, for HD Um, you know it could be in the next few years like two years ago we thought it might be been this year Mm -hmm. so if that happens We have to figure out how are we going to get that treatment to people. Mm -hmm. So we don't actually even know where the people are. Mm -hmm. So this is the first thing. So we are preparing for treatments by figuring out the prevalence. The prevalence will help us get the drug approved, um, hopefully on the PBS, because you Mm -hmm. have to know a lot about the numbers and how much it's going to cost Mm -hmm. and things like that. So the prevalence study will help us with that the registry will tell us where people are. And the next thing we have to figure out is where the medical systems are around those people who can actually Mm -hmm. deliver the drugs because they're not usually a tablet. They're going to probably be um, something more complicated. Mm -hmm. It could be, um, through the spinal, um, into the spins the cerebrospinal fluid in the spine, like Mm -hmm. an epidural kind of, Mm -hmm. or it could even be a brain surgery. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of uh, work to do to develop the infrastructure, to get ready for Mm -hmm. treatments. And we need to be ready Mm -hmm. because, Mm -hmm. um, We're really hot on the trail of finding something. And that's why you
1: developed the Huntington Disease Network Australia.
2: That's right, Huntington's (laughs) Disease Network of Australia. And if people are interested in that, they can um, find it at hdna.com.au. It has some information about Huntington's disease there, and we really hope to grow this network um, over the next couple of years and really get ready for treatments.
1: It's an amazing initiative, Julie. I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you, and we hope you'll stick around.
2: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. This is a
1: podcast from Triple
3: R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how.
1: We were talking about Terry's, you know, pretty good CV earlier in the show, Um, but there was something missing from it, Terry, and you've achieved it today. Coming on our show. <laughs> <laughs> it
4: I'll will... go home and add that to the, exactly. Uh, to the um, CV it will actually do
1: irreparable damage to your career. But um, nonetheless, let's push on. Uh, I wanted to hear about how you became a neurologist. Was that something you wanted to become as a kid, or something that came to you later?
4: Yeah. That, thanks, Dr. G Spot, um, and it's a pleasure to be on the show this morning. Thanks for inviting me, in and fant- fabulous to come in and do a face-to-face uh, um, interview after. Two years on straight Zoom meetings. Mm. Um, that's a look. That's a really good question. And uh, you know, some people I know, many of my colleagues. Um, knew from the beginning of their their consciousness, they wanted to be a doctor and they wanted to be a neurologist and uh, and they just followed followed that path. Um, I wasn't one of those. I uh, didn't have no idea what I wanted to do when I went through school and uh, um, and uh, I thought I might be a vet or an engineer and uh, I ended up in medicine as you do. And then as I went through medicine, uh, you know, I uh, I actually thought I'd be a surgeon. Um, and then I uh, I got into uh, to uh, surgery as an intern, but and, uh, you
1: realised you were too personable. Or? Oh, well, yeah,
4: it, it wasn't for me. Just put it that way. For a variety of different reasons, and then I rotated as you do as a as a, as a medical trainee through a whole lot of different uh, jobs. And to be honest, I liked, I liked them all. I liked uh, I liked oncology and cardiology and endocrinology. But then when I did uh, neurology, I, I really just fell in love with the brain, and just uh, it's just such a fascinating organ, and uh, and uh, it's uh, challenged me from the moment I. Uh, I first fell in love with it to uh, to every day today. So that's that's basically what happened and how I ended up as an Oh,
1: fantastic! And we know that you are particularly interested in epilepsy, which isn't just one disorder but mm-hmm. multiple. Please tell us more
4: well this is really timely actually um, because uh, yesterday March 26th was uh, purple day e- epilepsy purple day Yay. so we're all about raising awareness and uh, I was so delighted to see on uh, my 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 uh, feed along with all this uh, other horrible stuff that's happening around the world a number of of uh, articles and zo- and um, and uh, YouTube, things that came up promoting um, Purple Day and uh, raising awareness for epilepsy, and in particular, um, a really tragic complication of epilepsy that our group has a major research interest, and in that is SUDEP, uh, sudden unexplained death and epilepsy. Um, it's also uh, very timely because the uh, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare has just released a um, a survey of, uh, of epilepsy in Australia um, and uh, found that over 150,000 Australians live with epilepsy. Uh, We estimate up to 10% of people will have a single seizure at one time in their life. That doesn't equal epilepsy. Epilepsy is when you have a predisposition to recurrent seizures. But 150,000 Australians are living with it at the moment.
1: My goodness. And you mentioned seizures. Uh, So what can seizures look like?
4: Look, they're enormously variable. This is, this is one of the reasons why I found epilepsy in neuroscience such a fascinating area, because the manifestation of the seizures depend entirely where in the brain um, the abnormal activity is occurring. So it gives you a real insight into the, how the brain functions when you um, know where a seizure is coming from in the, in the clinical manifestation. So, so everyone um, is aware of the, uh, the most obvious convulsive seizures and, uh, and you know, we've either all seen one or seen mm-hmm. one on television... Um, where someone falls to the ground and has a major convulsion and this is enormously scary and dangerous. But there are many other much more subtle types of seizures where people can just lose contact, become confused for a period of time, get a funny smell or taste or even a vision, um, tingling. So they're, they're enormously variable and not all seizures are major convulsions. Mm-hmm. Um, they're really the tip of the iceberg. But all seizures are potentially dangerous and uh, and disabling to people's lives.
1: Yeah. And who's impacted by epilepsy?
4: Well, obviously, the people who have epilepsy themselves um, impacted. Uh, in many cases, uh, well, in almost all cases, they can't drive. They have limitations in uh, if their seizures aren't controlled. And I'll come back to that. Um, they have limitations in um, in, uh, in occupations that they can do because of the risks of seizures. Um, they have uh, effects of the medications. We have good medications, but they're far from perfect. And many patients will experience side effects of medications, mm. which impact their quality of life, make them tired, different things thinking, Weight gain, other 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 aspects. If they want to become pregnant, there's uh, there's risks to the baby for some of the medications in particular, um, which is very frightening for for people who are planning families. Um, and there's it, it's one been historically one of the most stigmatized conditions um, in the. Uh, in the in, in in history, it's been known to humanity since ancient times, and uh, has been was called, it
1: Julius uh, Caesar who had Ju- epilepsy? Well,
4: yeah, many 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 famous people are mm. supposed to have had epilepsy, and Julius Caesar is one of them. Um, and but. Uh, uh, you know, it's been equated to uh, to, de- to possession and uh, demons and uh, mental illness and all sorts of things. And unfortunately, even in Australia, it is still uh, it is still a condition that people are stigmatised by. One of those YouTube well, um, feeds that came up was someone saying how she lost all her friends um, after, she, after and was ostracised after she uh, she uh, was um, uh, diagnosed with epilepsy.
1: Oh my goodness. And you mentioned medications there, Terry. What kind of medications do people take for epilepsy?
4: So the standard medications are a group of medications called anti-seizure medication. We actually have a lot of them. There's 17 different anti-seizure medications that are available in Australia. Um, and, uh, and that's a good thing because it means, and I always tell my patients when, they, when we first talk about starting medications that, you know, I can't promise the first tablet you take will be the right one for you. You might have side effects, you might have, it might not control your seizures, but I can. We've got lots of options. We'll work with you. It's a bit like I, I say to to uh, some of my uh, my female um, patients. It's like going in a dress shop or a male going into a suit shop, and uh, and saying and, and you may, the first suit you try on may not be the right fit for you, but we'll find the right right mm-hmm. fit ultimately. Mm-hmm. But even despite those seventeen medications, up to a third of patients with mm-hmm. epilepsy still don't have their seizures controlled. And I said I was going to come back to that because there's a fundamental difference between uh, having your seizures controlled and not having your seizures controlled. If your seizures are controlled so you're in that two thirds to get the right medication and don't have seizures you can drive, you can do almost all jobs, your quality of life is uh, is significantly better your risk of injury and death is significantly better. Where Converse the people who continue having seizures are the ones that have the really major disability. So what my, I do in my job is to work with patients to find ways to control their seizures and we all I always say we're never going to give up until we control your seizures completely. We may not achieve that, but we're going to keep trying. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a whole sorts of options. There's advanced surgery now at the Alfred. We've uh, we do uh, we've do, we've done about thirty. Um, stereo EGs, which are these advanced ser- urges where electrodes are placed in- into the brain to pinpoint where the seizures come from. And that's been able to offer um, uh, curative epilepsy surgery to a number of patients who could never have their seizures controlled with medication or older surgical techniques. There's stimulators like the vagal nerve stimulators. There's dietary approaches. And one of our, um, our academic dieticians, Neha Kuhul, has uh, been an Australia leader and was just in the, uh, the media this week about um, modifying the ketogenic diet to make it to for allots. So we have a lot of therapeutic options. Mm-hmm. It's not just about medications, but medications are the mainstay. Mm.
1: And you mentioned SUDEP before, and I know that's something you love chatting about, so I'm going to give you the chance to chat about it more.
4: Yeah, well, Base Pro is probably not the right word. it's a, <laughs> My apologies. I mean, I would, lo- I, would lo- no, I would love it if SUDEP didn't exist, um, but unfortunately it does. And I think it's really important to talk about it because um, it's a uh, it's common firstly, um, and uh, over it's thought that over a hundred Australians a year die of Sudep. Mm. Uh, it's been much under recognised. It is the most common cause of sudden death in young people in Australia, um, and yet uh, until very recently, most people and, and even most doctors were not even aware about it. Uh, most patients, when one of the most common things families say when they lose a loved one with Sudep, is I never heard of this. Mm. Why didn't anyone tell me you could Mm -hmm. die from your seizures?
1: Why do you think people aren't talking about it?
4: Well, they are now starting to talk about Mm. it. I think there's been a lot of promotion by the Epilepsy Foundations. There's a group in Britain called Epilepsy Bereave, which has been fantastic at raising profile. Um, And it really is important to raise profile because there are ways to prevent SUDEP. Um, SUDEP is intimately tied with the risks with with having ongoing convulsive seizures, um, and for many people, if they get the right treatment and they um, and they uh, uh, and they understand why they need to take their treatments, they can control mm-hmm. their seizures and therefore reduce their brick So it is really important, and you know we now advise doctors to uh, to mention it. At the beginning, when they first diagnosed epilepsy, which is something people were very shy about doing before, because mm. they didn't want to um, unreasonably frighten the patients. And you know, in an individual patient, individual seizure, the risk is low. But when you add it up over a population, it's, ver- it's, it's very significant.
1: Mm. Do patients sometimes freak out hearing about SUDEP?
4: Um, if, well, these days, if you don't tell them, I don't tell them about it, they'll find out about it anyhow. Mm. So I think it's really helpful for me to mention it and bring, put it in context. And I do say exactly what I just said then, that while this is an important risk for you to know about, in an individual person, an individual seizure, it's small. Um, and it is one of the... Uh, and the way I generally say it is that, you know, th- there's reasons why I think we should start these medications to control your seizures Um, and and one of them is because seizures are dangerous Um, Mm. and people know that you can injure yourself in seizure, you can crash your car, you can drown. I see, you know, occasionally people even die as a result of a seizure and Mm. uh, so that's a really important reason for us to treat these and, and prevent you having them.
0: Mm. And so I say
4: it in that context. So it's not, you know, if you don't take your pills, you will die, um, which is <laughs> a, a pejorative way to do it. It's, Sounds like yeah, more like it's, my it's,
1: clinical approach. It's,
4: yeah, it's, <laughs> well, it, it, you know, tr- treating epilepsy um, like treating any chronic disease, mm. the doctor doesn't actually treat the patient. Mm. The doctor provides advice so that the person can treat their own epilepsy. Mm. Um, I can't make people take tablets. I've got to give them good reasons why they, uh, they, they are motivated to do it themselves. Mm. See, normally what we do on this radio show, it's very <laughs> democratic. When someone
0: wants to ask a question, they wave their hand. <laughs> I've been waving madly.
4: at I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: I'm sorry, so I'm Dr. Mao. See, of... Liz,
1: Terry doesn't know that I've stayed up all night preparing <laughs> well, for this. And, uh, yes, no, I haven't. <laughs> we
0: were... <laughs> no, there were so many <laughs> great points you raised, Terry. Dr. um Just with SUDEP, which is Sudden Unexplained Death from Epileptic... Sudden Unexpected. Mm. Sudden Unexpected Death, right. <clears throat> What's the... What's the cause of that? Is it sort of the brain shuts down or what happens, a cardiac event?
4: Yeah, look, that's a really good question. Actually, that's um, been a, a focus of our research group over the last decade, both yeah. our basic science group as well as our, our clinic group as well as many groups around the world. If you look at the, uh, the number of articles that have looked at SUDEP and uh, mechanisms of SUDEP 10 years ago, there was virtually none. Now there's there's thousands a year. It's really a very active area of research. Yeah. Um, it's the, the, the short answer, it's probably not just one mechanism for all patients. Yep. Um, the, the best insight we actually have to mechanisms is, is a study called the Mortimer Study, which was a, multi, uh, a multi-centre international survey that our, our unit was part of, along with 180 centres around the world, which looked at the incredibly rare but tragic circumstance of where someone having video EG monitoring, which mm. is what we do as part of the workup for epilepsy surgery died during the monitoring mm. thankfully none none at our unit and they looked to see what happened to the EEG and the heart mm. in that time leading up to the person dying and it does seem that in mo- in all of those cases in fact it was a, a, what we call a cerebral shutdown so mm-hmm. the brain shut down first and then that inhibited the the breathing mm-hmm. and then the heart uh, and then that and, and then that caused a secondary lack of blood flow and oxygen to the brain which actually was the terminal event so it mm-hmm. did seem the primary event was the brain mm. um, and the cardiac and uh, mm. and respiratory um, changes came secondary. Mm. However, there are also <coughs> m- a number of documented examples of people with cardiac mm. abnormalities mm. and uh, and genetic abnormalities in the heart who also have sudden death or sudden arrhythmias. And so, it's probable that in some cases, if you've got an underlying heart. Uh, condition, yeah. mm. um, genetic or otherwise, that you may not know you have, and you put the major stress of a seizure on top of it. Yeah. It's a bit like I just heard mm. as I was driving in that uh, that, uh, that Danish soccer player who had a cardiac arrest on the field has just come back and scored his first goal. So he had an underlying cardiac arrhythmia that, uh, deficit mm. that he didn't know about. The stress of the athletic performance brought on that uh, cardiac yeah. arrhythmia. Mm having a seizure is like a major athlete. Mm. You know, it's so much muscle contraction and mm. physiological mm. stress. Mm. If you've got an underlying deficit, um, it can trigger that. Yeah. So it's probably a combination of mechanisms, yeah. heart and brain. Mm. And before we were talking with uh, Julie Stout about
0: the aspiration and hope of a, of a treatment just right around the corner that's going to really knock Huntington's on its head, do, do, uh, do we have the same hope for
4: epilepsy? Well, that's what my grants say. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it, you know, in some ways, you can say we've been blessed in terms of brain disease with epilepsy. We've actually had treatments that do suppress seizures in a proportion of people since the 1800s. Bromides are introduced. Yeah, they were yeah. one of the first successful treatments for any brain disease. Yeah. Um, and of course, we have these 17 anti-seizure medications, which can control seizures in you know, the majority of people. Mm. Um, What none of these medications do is stop the seizures in this one-third of people who are drug-resistant and Mm. 70 years of new drugs being brought onto the market has not changed that one-third, one jot. It's Mm. still the same third as were controlled by Dilantin in the 1940s. So that's a bit depressing. Mm. Um, And the other part about it is all the treatments are symptomatic. So if you stop your medications, you're as likely to have a seizure if you never took it in the first place. Chronic disease that exists in a lifetime for many people, re- remembering to take your tablets, particularly for young people, every twice a day, every day, indefinitely, mm. yeah. is a hard thing. Yeah. So um, what we're really looking for, and this is where my, my research group really focuses on, what we call disease-modifying treatments, mm-hmm. treatments that are actually able to reduce the severity or even better cure the epilepsy the only way we can do that at the moment is with epilepsy surgery Mm -hmm. Um, and we have new advanced ways i mentioned stereo eg but there's still that's only suitable for maybe five percent of Mm -hmm. all people with drug resistant epilepsy so for 95 percent of people we're still looking for um, medical um, new medical ways to uh, to um, to reverse or or cure the epilepsy we only have five minutes and in that five minutes i want
0: you to explain the entire process of drug design <laughs> so, um, <laughs> not to mention
1: your own maladies yeah, yeah, as well sim- dr mal yeah. you know yeah. um
0: could you just take us through step by well not step by step but could you just give us a, a summary of how do you choose a drug which you
4: think is going to work I mean there's a lot do you mean in the actual drug development or as a clinician uh, no, in drug development yeah yeah so um, mm. I mentioned uh, and, Dilantin and 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 uh, two uh, scientists uh, Merritt and Putnam in the 1940s mm. they discovered um or known commonly as Dilantin, which has been an incredibly effective Mm. anti-epileptic medication and uh, has really transformed the lives of people with epilepsy. Mm. Being the first drug, unlike the barbiturates and bromides, had terrible Mm. side effect profiles. It actually, most people, had a good tolerability. didn't make your cognition impaired and controlled two thirds of seizures. Mm. So they discovered that by screening a whole bunch of different compounds in some animal models of seizures. Mm. Um, Animals that are induced to have seizures and looking to See, um, see whether, um, whether they, which compounds reduce the seizure, and then basically took them through to clinical trials. That paradigm has been what's been used for the last 70 years, yeah. which is wow. why, why many of us believe we actually haven't advanced. Mm-hmm. So what we're now doing is looking at both cellular models and as well as uh, in vivo models of drug-resistant epilepsy with chronic epilepsy and looking for treatments that that actually re- able to reverse that mm. the, the, uh, the underlying uh, substrate of epilepsy. And where do we choose these different compounds? There's libraries of available compounds mm. that may have never been tried before. That's mm. a good place to start because mm. those drugs are already approved for other uses mm-hmm. um, and there's you know, new, new as molecular science advances we understand more about the molecular biology of epilepsy targeting specific uh, molecules because epilepsy is a heterogeneous condition there's over 100 causes it's likely you're not going to have one mm-hmm. one drug for every disease mm. and we are now going along the lines of what we call precision medicine where you're looking for specific molecular targets in specific subgroups mm. of people with epilepsy mm. and, and developing drugs for those mm. it, it sounds very similar
0: to the process whereby um bipolar disorder or mania has been treated and mm. you know because a lot of the drugs are, are used the, the anti-epileptic drugs uh, are used a lot of overlap yeah mm. a lot of overlap there and um you know, I'm thinking bromides were used, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, hundreds of years ago, and then lithium came along yeah. for for the use of mania in the in the in the 50s in Australia. Um, uh, has lithium got any use at all in in epilepsy?
4: No, no, it's it's not an effective anti-epileptic drug, mm. anti-seizure drug. Um, we do have a lot of patients with bipolar, or portion mm. of patients with bipolar also have epilepsy. Yeah. So you do see an overlap. We tend, though, in those patients, to use the anti-epileptic drugs that are also. Yeah. But are Effective, mood yeah. stabiliser, mm. so uh, lamotrigine or yep. valparate or, yep. or one of the drugs that is uh, that has has efficacy in both conditions mm. <laughs> uh,
1: dr mal is giving me the wind up and i we have so many more questions terry and julie we need to have you both back on i suppose terry if someone's um looking for support with epilepsy mm. maybe they have a loved one or maybe themselves are experiencing it where should they go who should they call
4: yeah, so there are actually really good. We're lucky in Australia; we have really good support organisations there. In Victoria, the uh, the main epilepsy support organisation is the Epilepsy Foundation of Victoria. Um, in uh, in New South Wales, uh, Epilepsy Action Australia, and both of those organisations have um, have reach around the country. So, they uh, they have um, they have counsellors, they have nurses, they have um, educational materials. But also, I think it's really important, particularly people who have drugs as epilepsy, that they get in referred in into a specialist epilepsy centre um, where they, there are nurses, epilepsy nurses and people who can give them the right education and specialists who can give them the right advice about what of the various treatment options might be available for them. So do you reckon the first place people should head, um, if they're just sitting at
0: home, obviously, um, <laughs> is to go to uh, the Epilepsy Foundation of
4: Australia? The Society so, of Australia? Epilepsy Foundation of Victoria for, for Victorian... Yep. Are we just Victorian here or are we national? Do
1: you know, because we've had such a response on Twitter, Terry, I think we are global, <laughs> maybe even universal. <laughs> well, so, <yeah.
4: laughs> so there's the International uh, Bureau of, Epile- of Epilepsy, which is uh, the the mayor of the International League Against Epilepsy, which is the scientists and Doctors, the International Bureau of Epilepsy is the support organisations. They have chapters in virtually every country That's around amazing. the globe. Uh, they're a great organisation, and uh, so get on the website, look up the IBE chapter in your wherever you're listening to us <laughs> in the globe, and uh, and I'm sure that there's, a, there's a chapter that will be there to support you. Thank you so
0: much, uh, Professor Terry O'Brien. I didn't even get to ask what the J stands for, but maybe uh, when you come on the next show, don't don't hit the drama up. We'll keep it we'll <laughs> for next time. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.